Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. It's become commonplace to hear politicians and commentators bemoaning the energy expenditure of Bitcoin mining, noting that it consumes more power than certain industries or countries, and confidently proclaiming that the Bitcoin network performs no useful work. But recently, an emerging group of scholars has pushed back on this narrative, arguing that in fact, Bitcoin mining has certain special properties that make it ideal for subsidizing renewable energies. If this is true, it could become an important part of mitigating the effects of climate change. Tonight, we're joined by one of the original scholars advancing this thesis. Troy Cross is a professor of philosophy at Reed University, where he focuses on questions of knowledge and reality. In addition, he is a fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute, where you can find his work on energy and economics, Bitcoin mining, and the environment. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Troy, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is an interview I've wanted to do for a long time. I'm, I'm glad we finally got it put together. Yeah, same here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems that you work on today? Okay, well, I'm a, I'm a philosophy professor. I, I still am a philosophy professor, I think. Right. <laughs> uh, teach at a little liberal arts college in the Pacific Northwest, Reed College. And uh, that's been my whole career in academic philosophy. But uh, in 2011, I found uh, Bitcoin which I just thought was an awesome idea. I thought it was an awesome philosophical idea. I really enjoyed the young, irreverent, and very smart community that I found discussing Bitcoin. It was refreshing to me. And it was exciting to think about the potential of the technology. I went down the rabbit hole very far. Um, uh, life happened. I had two kids. Right. <laughs> I, uh, Bitcoin kind of receded in my focus. Um, I sold a lot of it, <laughs> almost all of it. And, uh, but I came back to it really a couple of years ago, got interested in it again, and especially got interested in the energy and emissions and mining side of Bitcoin, but Bitcoin more generally fell down the rabbit hole again, very hard. And, uh, now I am taking a year of leave from my job, just working on Bitcoin stuff full time. And, uh, I'm a fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute. We're an educational organization designed to basically get the truth out about Bitcoin on all sorts of issues, inform lawmakers, inform the media, inform the public. And I'm really enjoying that. I'm advising a number of companies. And uh, I don't know what happened, but somehow I ended up in the Twitter sphere of Bitcoin and it became a life somehow. I feel like a lot of people get sucked in and that ends up happening. They do a couple of interviews and then before they know it, they're just on Twitter all day arguing about Bitcoin and talking to Bitcoin people. So so do you do actual mining yourself? You know, right now I'm not doing any mining, which is sad and I'm ashamed to admit it. Uh, I mined back in the day 
Right. I, when I quit mining, I was still mining well over a Bitcoin per day. Wow. Um, so in some ways, I'll just never live up to that again. <laughs> but um, I, 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 I want to do some mining. I'd love to do mining with like home solar my uh, and, and test out my theories on, on my own house. But my house is in, in the shade. It does not set up well for solar. That's awful. And uh, I'd like to mine hosted. I, one of the companies I'm advising is uh, not really online yet, but uh, is promising. They're called SAS Mining. They do uh, mm-hmm. mining hosted mining with renewable energy. And um, so I have a deposit with them as well as being an advisor. And I plan on mining with SAS, but I'm not doing any mining right now. No, I I wish I were. We are going to spend quite a lot of the episode on Bitcoin mining and its its energy impacts. But but first, I wanted to start with a a nice softball. So you work in epistemology in in theories of knowledge. And and I noticed that there's a lot of conceptual confusion in the crypto asset space. So, for example, people don't seem to have a very clear idea of what the concept of decentralization means. And they seem to be implicitly using different versions of them and talking past each other. So I just wanted to ask you, in your view as an epistemologist, what is a concept? And how is it that we can be less clumsy when we use them? Oh my God! Classic so you said you were going to epistemological <laughs> curveball, but did you ask me what is a concept? What is your solution <laughs> to the problem of universals? Go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the word concept has as many definitions and as many different uses uh, as as there are disciplines. It means one thing in psychology. It means another thing in linguistics. Uh, it means even different things within philosophy. But I don't, long story short, in terms of functionally, how do we get more clear about our terms? I think there's no system, there's no shortcut. There's nothing that you can learn about how to make your ideas clear that is a a perfect algorithmic system like Bitcoin itself. Um, Various people have tried to do it. Uh, the The famous philosopher, Leibniz, Gottfried Wilhelm von Leibniz, who invented the calculus along with Newton, proposed a perfect language in which all concepts would be clear and we would never misunderstand each other. And he thought that in this language, if we could speak this language, uh, there would be no disagreements because all disagreements ultimately boil down to using terms in slightly equivocal ways. And uh, well, let's just say Leibniz was wrong. There is no such perfect language. We're stuck with the one we have, and all we can do is sit in a room with each other or in a space like this, a virtual one, and try to be charitable and keep asking questions and going into the mind of another person step by step and, until we reach uh, an understanding of where we disagree. There's there's no codification of terms uh, possible, and I know that because philosophy tries to do it throughout its history, codify, persistify terms, and it never works. There's no <laughs> such thing as a good concept that's clear and everyone gets, and people are always gonna go off script. Language is ever evolving, and the only thing you can do is spend time with people and be charitable. There, There's no formal shortcut to that. I wish there were. That's, that's a classic Futurati podcast curveball. So I, I told you I was going to throw you one. <laughs> <laughs> it truly was. Oh, my God. What is the kind of I took a graduate class at uh, Rutgers with Jerry Fodor, one of the great yep, philosophers yep. of mind of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, the entire class was on what is a concept. <laughs> that was the course. That was the course. Theories of concepts. Jer- Jerry didn't didn't arrive at an answer. 
Uh, well, he has his own answer, but you know, he's of course he's wrong. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So with that curveball having been thrown, I want to get right into the the meat of your work. So there's been a lot of hand wringing about the energy that is consumed by Bitcoin mining, with it being commonplace to note that it uses more energy than Zimbabwe or washing machines or what have you. You've written an op-ed with Margot Pais arguing that Bitcoin mining should be using more, not less energy. Why is that? Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, the comparison to countries is always annoying because <laughs> Bitcoin is a it's an industry, not a country. Right. And when you compare industries generally to countries, the countries get dwarfed. What you really learn from that comparison is that there's only a few countries that absorb or use all the energy in the world. Like you look at the chart, there's the US, you know, Germany, China, uh, some other, you know, U UK, France, and then it just kind of drops off. After the first five countries, it's like tiny in comparison. And so, yeah, Bitcoin uses more energy than a lot of countries. Uh, so does, you mentioned washing machines. Right. So do dryers, right? Dryers mm -hmm. use more uh, energy than Bitcoin, just dryers in the US. Dryers in the US alone use more than almost all countries. Wow. But that, to give you perspective, <laughs> what, what you really learn from that comparison is about the US and how much energy we use. We use a ton of energy. Uh, and, it, and it correlates with wealth, of course. Mm -hmm. And energy use correlates with uh, economic output. Uh, so I dislike that comparison. Right, right now, we use, according to Cambridge, about 0.16% of primary energy. So, you know, that's, is that a lot? Is that not a lot? Uh, it depends on your viewpoint. You'll hear a lot of people say, it erases the gains we've made from electric vehicle adoption. And I'm like, whoa, that means electric vehicles, there's less than like gaining us less than a, like around a thousandth of emissions like that the set the right. amazing news there to me is not about bitcoin again but about just like how marginal the the right. switch to electric vehicles that's, is that's not the dunk you think it is <laughs> exactly so it's like wow okay 0.16 it's really given it, it's really a distraction honestly as i see it it's a distraction look at look at subsidies to fossil fuels direct subsidies worldwide it's uh, $450 billion annually, direct. If you count in externalities, it's $5.9 trillion. Uh, it, look at the entire Bitcoin mining network. Here's a way to think about Bitcoin's energy use from the perspective of the mining industry. Right now, the revenue from Bitcoin, we know the revenue. It's in, it's in the blockchain, right. how much award is going to miners. It's 6.25 uh, Bitcoin per block, 900 a day. And annually, in dollar terms, uh, Bitcoin mining revenue last year was $16 billion. Right now, it's under a billion dollars a month. It's it's probably $800 million a month, total revenue. So take that $16 billion and compare it to $450 billion in direct fossil fuel subsidies. Why are, why are we even having this conversation once you see that? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. But also, look at that $16 billion in revenue from mining. Uh, margins were really healthy last year in mining. Uh, there was a very tight supply on uh, ASICs and on power. So maybe $8 billion was spent by the mining industry chasing that $16 billion. And out of the $8 billion that they spent, uh, half of it's on 
OPEX and half of it's on CAPEX. So half of it's on like their, their, their setup and machines. So that's 4 billion left for their uh, op operating expenses. And uh, on the operating side, maybe three quarters is spent on energy to be generous. So that's $3 billion energy spent total on all kinds of energy uh, globally by the industry last year, $3 billion energy spend. And you have to think that is what is protecting uh, the entire network of Bitcoin, which was, was over a trillion dollars at the time in, in, in value. Uh, now it's significantly less. <laughs> it's like probably 400 billion in yeah. market cap right now. But that's basically, that was the energy spend or that was the defense spending for the network as a whole, $3 billion in energy. And then look at the renewable percentage within Bitcoin was maybe 60%, at least 50%. So we're talking about maybe $1.5 billion that went to fossil fuel. And so now compare Bitcoin's total spend in a boom cycle was maybe $1.5 billion. We just simply gave from governments to fossil fuel companies $450 billion in a direct subsidy. Um, and you would never guess that from the discourse surrounding uh, this, this issue. And you know, it's not just that, but it's banks lending to uh, banks lending to support fossil fuel development. Uh, trillions of dollars in lending over the last 15 years from banks. It's a complete, it's orders of magnitude greater in impact. And the really deep thing about Bitcoin, I can't even really talk about because it's hard to actually think. And that is, it's a monetary standard that's deflationary and allows you to see what technology is doing to prices. This is basically Jeff Booth's thesis in, in, in The Price of Tomorrow. It, once you see that that technology is making everything cheaper, if you see things in Bitcoin terms, ride a beam of Bitcoin instead of a beam of light. Right? Right, That's right. how I think about Jeff Booth. Uh, then you see that we've distorted behavior in all sorts of ways that lead to uh, unnecessary spending and consumption, which we wouldn't do on a Bitcoin standard. Uh, I think the, that's the probably... Uh, biggest impact of fiat currency on the environment is we're trying to live on a finite planet with infinite money that is growing infinitely. And uh, I think Bitcoin is a better way of thinking about wealth uh, as, a as a finite means of storing wealth over time. It reflects the finitude of nature itself. So anyway, sorry, that's big picture stuff. That's backing a big picture. The question, the really direct question you asked are like, why should we be mining more Bitcoin? Right. Um, that's because Bitcoin is a perfect fit, uh, as Margot and I see it, uh, with uh, renewable energy development. Renewable energy has problems right now. It's a fast growing sector, but it's got problems. One of those problems, the number one, according to the IEA, is financing. Um, it's it's an uncertain investment to build out a new renewable plant because you don't know who's going to buy that power from you once you start say buy build a new solar plant who's going to buy that solar produced electricity from you and how much are they going to pay for it you you can't know that ahead of time and as more and more solar comes on the grid and when you're producing power at the same time other people are 
and that creates what's called solar deflation. Um, no one's willing to buy power during the peak times of the day when solar is producing. And there's a long time uh, waiting to get connected to the grid because we basically don't have uh, the right kind of infrastructure, interconnection, and high power transmission lines, high voltage transmission lines to get power where we need it to go. Uh, so waiting a long time for an indefinite payout just doesn't uh, create confidence on the part of an investor or a bank who would lend for a project like that. Um, Bitcoin helps to address these problems. First of all, it can mine during that period where you're waiting for infrastructure to be built to connect to the grid. So during that wait period, you can monetize the electricity, making the queue less relevant. Right now, the queues are of different lengths. I keep hearing reports from all over the world and getting them mixed up in my head, but they range anywhere from three years to 10 years to gigantic question mark years. Uh, it's incredible uncertainty. If you can eliminate that uncertainty by providing an off-taker who pays you in that period, it's tremendously helpful. The other thing it's helpful for is just absorbing the excess power from, from solar generally. Uh, we, you know, Solar produces a lot during this peak in the middle of the day, and then it tails off. Wind is kind of the opposite, thankfully, at night. Wind blows uh, more strongly than during the day. And then uh, uh, you have these kind of dips and periods of overproduction. Bitcoin uh, can function in a way that uh, you know, absorbs some of that excess electricity and monetizes it. And I guess here it's kind of tricky. Bitcoin can play kind of two roles. One is buyer of first resort, one's the buyer of last resort. The buyer of first resort is like a steady on. It's always taking power when it's there. Uh, but it will shut down at those times of day where the grid is demanding more than is being produced. Then you can shut down completely. So it's interruptible, but it's basically always on. And the other role is basically it only turns on when there's excess power, more than the grid needs. That would be buyer of last resort. And um, that one is in still in kind of a nascent stage, an unproven stage yet. But uh, theoretically, Bitcoin mining can work in both of those ways and uh, help to secure the financing of these programs, of these kinds of projects. The reason why Margo and I said it needs to be bigger is, uh, well, I just told you the budget of mining last, is right now less than a bill, billion in, a month in revenues worldwide. Right. We, we need to build out, uh, in order to meet, meet our 2050 targets, we need to electrify the entire econ economy, uh, change out internal combustion engines and fossil fuel heating for electric engines and electrical heating throughout the economy. That creates a tremendous amount of demand for electricity that we need to overbuild electricity, electricity, at least three to four X the current electricity production we have. That requires a lot of uh, financing, a lot of load balancing, and Bitcoin is simply too small to do anything like what it could do uh, at you know only a couple billion dollars of energy spend per year. For example, the the subsidies for solar in California alone dwarf the entire revenue of Bitcoin mining. So one state subsidies dwarfs our entire industry. So it's simply not big enough. Like my vision is there are 800 million people in Africa right now who do not have electricity. They don't have electricity. And um, 
right now, what do they burn for fuel, these 800 million? They burn kerosene, they burn uh, diesel, uh, sometimes run a diesel generator, right? but they cook over charcoal. It's smoky, it's dangerous, it's messy, it's inefficient, it's expensive. And we could skip over the fossil generation of electricity straight to renewables and SMRs, maybe nuclear, for this entire continent, parts of this continent that are not already electrified. Uh, and what stops these projects from going forward? There's no demand. There's no off-taker. Right? These villages that are unelectrified, if you don't have a refrigerator and an air conditioner and other stuff running on electricity, you certainly don't have an electric car. Then you put in a solar microgrid uh, and there's nobody there to buy your power. So uh, it's an unprofitable venture until people buy electric consuming uh, products or whether it's a business that uses electricity or whatever. Uh, so it's the same thing. It, you, you have a lag between the infrastructure build out and when you have an off taker, when you have a buyer. Of course, Bitcoin could go in and close that gap. And I would love to see nothing more than bringing power to people who don't have power and changing and improving their lives and doing it also in a way that's sustainable. Uh, I'd love to see that happen, but Bitcoin would have to be much, much bigger in order to really accelerate that pro pro project in a meaningful way. Uh, it's just too small of an off-taker. It sounds to me like the role Bitcoin plays in this process is one of smoothing. So the intermittency of renewable energies is pretty well known. You're describing an additional source of intermittency, and that is the runway the, the the lag between when you actually break ground, so to speak, and when there's actually someone there to buy that electricity. And then also just the one that everyone else is more familiar with, which is that you don't get any electric power from the sun when the sun's not shining. And there's just only so much battery storage you can put out there. So, and what Bitcoin can do is shave the tops off the, the peaks and take that excess power, which is Perhaps something people don't know as much about when you get these huge surges, it's got to go somewhere. And, and so there, there are situations in which Germany is, is you know, paying neighboring countries to take the power off their hands because they have nowhere to go with it. But then also when it goes down, when, when, uh, when, when electricity production goes down, they can switch off. And so they're able to fill in the troughs and shave off the peaks, both in terms of financing the project and then once it's running in terms of interacting with the grid and all of this is stabilized like a ballast it's an energy ballast within the the landscape of production and that makes it more feasible to finance the projects get them out there and then also just to run it afterwards it, do i have that right well the, you said it better than i did uh that, that's perfect and yeah i mean i think the big news to a lot of people is just the it, electricity is not this scarce thing that you don't want to waste a single watt. Um, it's, it's true that sometimes we need more power than we have, and we have to fire up generators to deliver the power that we need. But it is equally true that we often have more power than we need, and it's dangerous to the grid, and we have to get rid of it. So when you talk to grid operators and utility people, they see the problem is in, they see two problems where ordinary people see one. They see the problem of electricity excess and scarcity right. and they see the problem of sort of uh demand excess and demand scarcity and ordinary people just see the problem of supply scarcity mm -hmm. and demand excess they don't see this other problem so they it's hard for them to see the problem that bitcoin is fixing 
right? When Bitcoin takes off extra power, more than the grid needs, they don't see that advantage, right? right. We also just don't think about how, how, how utilities and grid operators think in terms of peaks. Um, you know, you have to plan for that peak. You build your whole system around that because you don't want to leave people high and dry when they need power. Right. And that just means you have all this excess capacity, which you're not using almost all the time, almost the entire year. And then that that has to be paid for, that capacity somehow. None of this is intuitive. We, we just have plugs in our walls and we just plug things into them and the power is just there when we need it. We don't think, ah, there must be perfect balance basically between supply and demand at all time. And something has to change whenever we add a load. Something has to change to balance that. Bitcoin is, as you said, it's like a ballast. It's a really flexible tool. It can turn off in five seconds. It can be controlled remotely. It can be turned down precisely, attenuated in its use of power. Uh, it, it's a remarkably flexible load. And, and just going by the uh, IEA projections, you know, we need a tenfold increase in flexible load by 2030 globally to meet our goals. We need a 20-fold increase by 2050 in flexible load. And, uh, you know, there's there's a, there's a lot of other kinds of flexible load, and we need those too, but those numbers are really staggering. Mm -hmm. And talking to people in power, there's flexible load and there's flexible load. Uh, you know, you can, talking to this guy, uh, Justin Orkney, who I just interviewed a while back at Duke Energy, he ran a pilot program on demand response uh, in Arizona with 12 homes, and they actually had uh, control from the they had control of people's like air conditioning temperatures. And so they'd cool their homes before the peak period in the afternoon of heat. And, uh, you know, it actually gets really intrusive when someone is like, if you sign up for one of these programs and someone's dictating to you when you can charge your car, when you can wash your dishes, when you can do your laundry, what temperature your house is going to be at what time, right? That's, that's really kind of messing with your life. And it's an open question how open Americans will be to getting a slightly reduced electricity rate in response for giving up this kind of control of their lives. Right. But with Bitcoin miners, it's like we know exactly how much profit they're giving up for any given amount of time. It's a stochastic process looking for looking for a block. Uh, you don't in, invest a lot into the process and then have to cut it short. You can control it remotely it's it's perfect. It never fails. And no one calls you complaining. Oh, you shut my power down when I needed it. Right. right. So it, 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 it is exactly what the IEA is saying we need. And, and talking to people in the industry, you know, when they describe this to their uh, co-workers and bosses and people in the industry as a flexible data center, they get very positive responses like, oh, yes, we need this flexibility. We need flexibility. As soon as you drop the word Bitcoin, you know, it it's a completely different conversation. It's like, oh, that's bad. It's a waste of energy. Right, right. Uh, I wanted to ask a, a follow-up question to that, which comes from Jake Sibley on Twitter. You and your cohort do a good job of arguing that Bitcoin mining provides a flexible load for the energy grid, which smooths out demand and incentivizes building renewable energy infrastructure. What Jake wanted to know was how is this practically viable, given that ASICs cost money and idle ASICs aren't recouping any of the capital expenditures. They need to run 24-7. So how does that interact with the economics of setting up a mining rig? Well, first of all, let's look at the two roles, buyer first resort and buyer last resort. So the buyer first resort basically runs all the time and they only shut off during these extreme price spikes. 
or you know crunches for demand when the power company can't meet the demand and those are rare and so they don't really cut into profitability but not only that but miners generally sell the right to turn themselves for the power company to turn them off for the grid to turn them off they sell that to the grid as an insurance pro- product so they get paid when they're not running by the grid and the grid is actually the one that's bearing that risk and so this is this is already happening uh, pretty widely it, it, price sensitivity or demand response at that end now where where the question gets really tough is at the other end can we run miners solely on excess solar or wind that is only on curtailed power so you have these <laughs> you have these big solar plants and like you said, sometimes the grid doesn't need their power. What do they do? They have to dump it somehow. Um, at, at Duke Energy, they have a microgrid. And they, when they have excess energy on that microgrid, they dump it into what is called a load bank. And a load bank, as far as I can tell, is, as Justin described it, like hair dryers in the forest. It is <laughs> these coils that you run electricity through create heat, and then you blow the heat off those coils. You're literally just dumping heat electricity into heat uh, to keep the, the the grid balanced, right? If you can replace those hair dryers in the forest with S9s in the forest, then you're printing money with your hair dryer right? <laughs> uh, and forming for the same function. But the question is, those, uh, those miners cost money and they're depreciating. And how much uptime do you need to get payback even when your power is free or negatively priced? We get negatively priced energy in these highly imbalanced markets, like through through Texas, there's periods of negatively priced energy. You're getting paid to run your mine, but still, if you only have 30 minutes of uptime a day, it's not going to be enough. And uh, a while back, when Bitcoin prices were high and the miner prices were high, uh, Brains did a study on, you know, what what kind of uptime uh, you would need with even free power, and it was non-trivial. Right? It was non-trivial amount. I can't remember the exact amount of power. But here's the thing, that number, how much uptime do you need to pay back CapEx uh, with a with a miner? It's gonna be variable with a lot of market conditions and with the machines. So like an S19, no way you're gonna re- you're gonna make good on that CapEx with minimal uptime, say just do using excess solar. But what about an S9? They only make a buck fifty a day. Maybe you can get an S9 for 100 bucks. I wouldn't pay 100 bucks for an S9 right now. I wouldn't pay more than 50 bucks. I mean, pretty soon it's going to be people have to pay you to haul the S9s away, right? Some right, right. miner used the expression to me. That's when you back a tr- back up the truck. You know, <laughs> this is what was happening in the last bear market. Um, basically, people are going to be giving these machines away for free, or pretty darn close to free. Um, and the only question is. Can you really pay back your rack space? Because you'll still need a facility to put them in. You'll still need a place to plug them in. Um, and it, and it, I think it's going to—it's an open question. I don't have a definitive answer to it. It depends on the market, the grid. How overwhelmed are they? How much curtailment is there? Uh, what's the weather like? Uh, it, what's the price of Bitcoin going to be? What? Who's competing for those machines? I, I think right now the biggest obstacle to this uh, mining, uh, the buyer of last resort, is actually flare gas miners. 
because they're competing for those machines, wow. right? They, they, you, you have also a lot of wasted and stranded energy uh, that is methane uh, around the world. It's in landfills, it's in uh, methane digesters at farms, it's in, uh, it's at oil wells, most notably around the world. There's enough methane just from oil wells to power five Bitcoin networks entirely. So that's who you're bidding against on your machines. They have high uptime. Uh, they have other problems. You know, they're spread all over the place. Uh, you have to go out to the field to service them. Uh, they have other problems. But the, the open question for the market to settle is really, to me, uh, can we buy, can we mine with purely curtailed solar and wind? I think solar wind combo would be the best, right? You have solar and wind connected. You mine when they're one of the two is curtailing. You mine. And you only mind then. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati Podcast? If so, please like it. Give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. Is that profitable with older machines nearing the end of their lifespan? I am actually very optimistic about that, but it, it's an incredibly difficult question to answer. We need to be like neck deep in the spreadsheet, basically. <laughs> that's, that's the, it's a great, that's a great, great question. It's a very philosophical question. It depends. <laughs> it depends. I got, yeah, <laughs> so the that's philosophy, the truth. philosophy professor. <laughs> that's the truth. You have to model it out. You know, we have to model it. There's no shortcut. So every every year, the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory on uh, California does um, uh, a chart, and they calculate out all of the source of where energy comes from and where it goes. And they, they always come to the conclusion that somewhere around 60 to 62% of all energy goes to waste. Um, they, they base that on uh, the fact that all light bulbs give off heat, it's not useful, and uh, the line loss of transmitting across the country and, and everything. And um, so it seems like this, this whole argument, it, it, this is such a sloppy industry to begin with, and to try to impose precision on it uh, seems like a false argument all around. Um, would, would you want to comment on that? Yeah, first of all, I love those uh, Senke diagrams that they put out. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I love that form of diagramming where you see the streams of, uh, the streams of energy, where they come from and where they go to. And yeah, the dominant stream is waste. Uh, most of it's transmission loss, but there are losses of all kinds. Uh, there are losses of all kinds. You you have to, uh, it, you, you can hardly see anything else when you look at the diagram. It's all waste. Right. The, yeah, electricity is almost all wasted. And, and, and yes, uh, you know, I think about uh, vampire uh, plugs or appliances, vampire use, that's much greater than Bitcoin. It's multiples of Bitcoin, you know, four or five times, however much Bitcoin mining uses, is just goes to appliances that are plugged in, but not turned on. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, that's yeah. one form of waste. The, 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 the biggest one that I could see that we could just like uh, fix by making those things more efficient. Plugs vary a lot, appliances vary a lot, and how much power they use in that 
turned off state. Uh, given given low hanging fruit like that, why you would go after uh, what I see as a uh, you know a world changing, life saving uh, step forward in in human progress? Why why you would go after that? Uh, it, it, it's it's beyond me. Actually, I'm writing a piece. I am writing a piece called "What We Disagree About When We Disagree About Whether Bitcoin Is Wasteful." And it, it, it's never the numbers and the stuff we're talking about. That's what people say. We have this discussion like, oh, is it is it up to, is Bitcoin's power consumption up to Sweden's yet? Is it, yeah, what, what country is it? Are we at Argentina? Is it Chile? Uh, you, you have those discussions, but really behind that is uh, a disagreement about Bitcoin's value. Right, yes. That's what we're really disagreeing about when we disagree about all this stuff. And um, it takes a long time to figure this out, but I just think about like the letter that uh, was signed by a, a number of senators, including, I guess it was written by Sheldon Whitehouse, but Elizabeth Warren was also on it. And uh, in that letter, at the end, they make some recommendations. One of the recommendations is uh, Bitcoin mining should only be allowed with renewable energy, renewable energy, 100% renewable only, but that wasn't enough. They said it has to be renewable energy from new sources. Right? So you have to, if you want to mine Bitcoin, you have to actually build a power plant that is 100% renewable and then never take anything off the grid, only use your own facility. And you read that and you think, okay, you can see how they got there. They got there because they started out by saying, well, Bitcoin is burning up the planet. It's using too much energy. And then people responded by saying, oh, you know, it's 60 something percent renewable. It's like more renewable than any other major industry. And they're like, ah, okay. Yeah, but that renewable wasn't, it's not 100% and it's not new. So they're just like paying <laughs> off existing renewable and actually creating demand for power that should be going to other uses. And you and you realize, first of all, it, Bitcoin doesn't pay a lot for, for power. It's very, very price sensitive. It's going to go to the cheapest price worldwide. So Bitcoin's really going to be non-rival in its consumption, almost by design, except during a really extreme price spike right it's going right. to be non-reliable you'd realize like what the only thing that would make these people happy is bitcoin literally just like taking scraps of waste energy not a single watt that could possibly be used for anything else right e even if it couldn't be used for something else it's like not a single watt of power that they haven't already introduced in a perfectly renewable <laughs> way should be allowed and then the lights come on and you're like wait a minute this has never been required of any other industry before or any other kind of power before. Why are they doing this? This is insane. And they've been walked there because they started down with like, oh, it's burning the planet. And then through a series of steps, there's been pushback. And then what's laid bare is that they think that Bitcoin is terrible. They think it's just a it, worthless or negative value uh, vehicle for, for for engaging in criminal activity, for sheer speculation. It's an annoying Ponzi. The people who do it or use it are the people they don't like, their enemies. Yes. And, you know, this is what's underlying it is pure rank hatred and tribalism. And then it there's this veneer of, of environmentalism over the top of it, which is, you know, convenient source of reasons for why. You can punish the thing you hate. 
And, and you, 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 you know, so, so it's like, I don't know how many times I found myself in these conversations where I get two thirds of the way into the conversation. And then I realize like, ah, there's really no point to this conversation at all, because I'm actually interested in the environment, energy, what we can do for the grid, actual Bitcoin's actual environmental footprint, and, and also that of the banking system, also that of uh, the stock market and other forms of uh, investment. You're not interested in any of those things. Right. You're fighting a culture war and I'm your enemy. Oh my God. And then we're like, okay, we gotta step back from we gotta step back from the tech thing and meet as people and see if we can become friends or you know what I mean? Realize the discussion is not really about energy, it's about like politics. Sorry, we're not supposed to go there, but that's it becomes about politics, right? They, they don't buy the vision. They they think it's it's bad. And so the waste is kind of a red herring. Like if Bitcoin cured cancer and boosted your IQ by a hundred points, it would be unambiguously the, the greatest humanitarian invention of all time. And it would be worth pouring everything, including fossil fuels into mining it. Well, the, the real disagreement is that they don't think it's a good thing. And therefore yeah. the mining is wasteful. It's all about what you're getting in return for that. And the energy economics right. piece is, is separate. It's a secondary consideration for a lot of these people. Absolutely. And, 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 and I think what you're getting out of it uh, differs depending on your perspective. If you are already controlling the money spigot, what you get out of it is negative. Yes. You have a competitor now. You've right. got a competitor. And uh, if you plan on financing uh, your government just simply by printing rather than taxing, well, okay, maybe Bitcoin is a negative for you because it's not really consistent with that vision. It's going to require you to tax rather than simply print. I mean, you can print, but y y your printing will be less effective post-Bitcoin than it was pre-Bitcoin. Yes. So so it, it is incompatible with certain visions, right? So let's just talk about that stuff rather than talking about energy because that's what it's that's what we're really disagreeing about is like how to fund government, whether people should have a right to store their value over time or whether they should have negative interest rates imposed upon them, whether people should have the right to send payments to others in an uncensorable way, whether the internet should be, whether the, whether the network of money should be like the internet and neutral and decentralized peer to peer, uh, or, or whether it, or whether it should be centrally controlled. Those are the real debates and for, for a lot of people. And, and this is just cover. I agree with all of that. But having said that, I am going to ask you more questions about the energy economics piece. Yeah, uh, of course. Do, I love this stuff. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. I, I want to talk about your remarkable proposal for incentivizing the greening of Bitcoin. In a paper you wrote with Andrew Bailey, you said, instead of changing Bitcoin itself, undermining fungibility, abandoning proof of work, or hosting wrapped Bitcoin on a competing blockchain, Bitcoin's own inner workings can be used to engineer a financial instrument that eliminates its negative environmental externalities. Walk us through that. Okay, cool. Yeah, here, here's this awesome thing about Bitcoin. Uh, its rate of issuance is set by the protocol itself um, in the form of uh, the block reward schedule and the difficulty adjustment 
we basically stay on a four-year halving cycle where we started with 50 Bitcoin per block. We're now at 6.25. In two years, we're headed to 3.125 Bitcoin per block. And that is inelastic. More demand for Bitcoin doesn't bump up that supply. Less demand doesn't bump it down. It, it is what it is. It's a fixed, algorithmically fixed supply curve. And uh, that's just like nothing else in the world. You know, gold is not like that. Wheat is not like that. There's no other commodity that is inelastic in its supply. And and it's also, as you know, the good is fungible. Bitcoin is fungible. It's location agnostic. It's easily portable. So take a general kind of policy tool for dealing with externalities of producing some kind of good. An externality is uh, an effect, uh, good or bad effect of production. So you make plastic and dump chemicals into the water. The chemicals are an externality. Uh, Carbon is an externality of CO2 is an externality of Bitcoin mining or producing the power to mine Bitcoin. Right? The normal tools that policymakers have to deal with this is like uh, a, a tax uh, to internalize the externality. You basically tax. look at the, the social cost of that those chemicals in the water and we like add that to the price of the plastic toys that you're making or right. whatever. Mm -hmm. so you pay for it. Um, and, and we can also put banning in that category. You could just ban an activity you don't like. Um, another thing we can do is, is enforce property rights, tort law yep. to handle externalities. You know, you can sue the person who dumped chemicals in your yard and then they pay you. That was the Kosian solution. Yeah, exactly. We have Kos and we have Pagu. Yep. So that, those are the two classics. Okay, neither of those works for Bitcoin at all. Like coast doesn't work because CO2 is utterly diffuse. It's not a pollutant per se on a local level. You know, as many people point out, it's in high quantities in greenhouses and uh, it, 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 its effects are global and unpredictable and statistically impossible to pin down to one producer or another. So the coast thing doesn't even begin to work. Uh, Pagu doesn't work either for a Bitcoin mining that is taxing the production, internalizing the externality. Uh, it, it, it doesn't work if it's applied in any kind of severe way because the production of Bitcoin just moves elsewhere. And this is the, the China ban. China bans Bitcoin mining. Hash rate drops by 50% or more. And immediately hash rate returns to where it was mm -hmm. over a period of a few months. It's right back where it was because basically Bitcoin miners just cross the border and fire up again. Why is that? It's because of the inelastic supply. It's because there's still 900 Bitcoin being minted every day, new Bitcoin being minted every day. So that's the incentive drawing miners to chase it. That incentive remains unchanged by the actions of China. So you can tax mining in your state or you can ban it but you cannot change the block you cannot change the block reward and it, it remains the same whatever your tax structure is so new york if they ban mining of a certain kind they've they've not taken one bitcoin out of that 900 bitcoin per day of reward right so the demand to mine bitcoin remains unchanged right okay so you realize the kind of futility of banning this activity or taxing it okay let's flip it you can use the very same feature 
that inelastic supply curve to hurt miners everywhere <laughs> because there's only 900 Bitcoin worldwide. If you start mining, you drive up difficulty and you take some of those Bitcoin off the table. If you start, if New York State started mining 90 Bitcoin a day, they would only leave 810 for the rest of the world to mine every day, right? It was just taking, and then people aren't going to mine unprofitably. So yeah, suppose that the US were to mine half of all Bitcoin, they would cut the revenues of the rest of mining in half, um, revenues in Bitcoin. And then whatever the, the, if the, if the carbon percentage remained the same, they would cut the carbon in half, provided the US was mining with, let's say, nuclear or something. So first of all, you kind of realize at the grand scale, if the state wanted to do something about Bitcoin mining, they should not prohibit it. They should engage in mining, take some of the Bitcoin off the table, drive up difficulty, drive down the revenue and profit of every other miner in a completely controlled and predictable way. And this is very different with, let's just say, compare gold. Suppose you tried to do this with gold. It doesn't have an inelastic supply curve. So suppose the we had a... Let's say, suppose we had an eco-friendly way of mining gold. We don't, but suppose we did. And we use this eco-friendly way of mining gold to mine a significant portion of gold in Alaska. The cost of mining gold in South Africa would change not at all. And you can't change the cost of mining gold in South Africa by mining it in, in, in Alaska. Uh, but you can change the cost of mining a Bitcoin anywhere in the world by mining a Bitcoin anywhere in the world you drive up cost. Basically think about Satoshi and how, you know, Satoshi, let's say, is mining, uh, he's the only miner, and then Hal comes along and doubles the hash rate. Suddenly, Satoshi goes from getting 50 Bitcoin per block to getting 25, revenue cut in half with one person flipping on the switch. Uh, and Hal knows exactly how much he's cut Satoshi's uh, revenue. Okay, he, here's the idea. Once you see that, how a state could attack Bitcoin by mining rather than prohibiting it, it's just exactly the opposite of what they're actually doing because they, this is so far outside of their mindset and because they're so addicted, drunk on power, basically, they love prohibiting and censuring <laughs> them, right? Wake it's up the only thing they know. Like the idea that you, would, it's because they think of it as a taboo way. It's we're back to what we were at before, right? What, what you really disagree about when you disagree about energy is whether Bitcoin is like this kind of, uh, tab taboo, don't touch the poo kind of stuff, right? <laughs> Stay away from it. It's gross. Yeah. So the idea that the state would get involved in it, it's like, oh no, that's terrible. But actually that would, that would be a very effective attack on Bitcoin if they could amass state revenues to drive the margins of mining negative. It'd be very hard for, for mining to stay afloat. I, I, I'm confident nobody in the U.S. government is listening to this, but if they threw billions of dollars if they threw billions of dollars at Bitcoin mining and make it really hard on miners, especially as prices falling right now, just like just jack the hash rate up even higher. It, oh man, it would just collapse the entire industry, right? Whereas if they ban it, people are just going to put their miners on trucks and go to the next country. Okay, here's the idea: how you can how you can use this observation to hold Bitcoin, ordinary Bitcoin, fungible Bitcoin in a carbon neutral way. Here's what you do. First of all, you figure out 
your percentage of all Bitcoin. You're a Bitcoiner, you hold some Bitcoin, you figure out what percentage of all Bitcoin is yours. Let's suppose it's 1%. We know that miners mine to pursue the block reward, the block subsidy plus fees, and that's all paid in Bitcoin to miners. They get paid in Bitcoin. So that's only worthwhile because Bitcoin's price is high. If Bitcoin were worth zero, those block rewards would be worth nothing and no mining would happen. Why is the price high? Because you are holding Bitcoin, that's why. <laughs> Only one group of people is keeping the price of Bitcoin where it is, and that's the holders. If they were to sell, it would be zero. So it's their non-selling that keeps it high. How much of that force, uh, which is reflected in the price of Bitcoin, that force of keeping Bitcoin's price high, how much of that is your responsibility? And here I say, just like divide your proportion, take your proportion of it. So if you own 1% of Bitcoin, you're 1% responsible for that price being where it is. That doesn't mean that's your marginal impact on price were you to sell. It's just a fair way of dividing the whole influence of all holders, which accounts for 100% of why price is where it's at. Take your percentage of that. So, so if you own 1% of Bitcoin, you're 1% responsible for the price of Bitcoin. And that's the incentive to miners. So that's kind of like the incentive that you give to miners. And then the prescription to make your Bitcoin carbon neutral is to do some mining, enter the competition with other miners in a way that balances out that incentive. So you make miners' life easier when you buy Bitcoin. You give them a basically a bigger block reward, more in dollar terms. But when you enter as a miner, you're competing with them, driving up difficulty and stealing some of that block reward yourself. So you're giving them two incentives. One is incentivizing them to mine by holding, and the other is when you start mining, you're disincentivizing them by basically decreasing the amount of Bitcoin that they get per hash in the same way that Hal did to Satoshi. Suddenly, Satoshi was running the same machine, suddenly getting half as much Bitcoin. So over over time, the amount of Bitcoin is dwindling. Uh, the availability of uh, unmined Bitcoin is is dropping. Uh, so how, how do you see this playing out over time as, um, as we're getting closer and closer to the end? Uh, does the price of Bitcoin have to go up proportionally to compensate for the, uh, the scarcity, uh, the growing scarcity of it? Um, do the miners switch to some other activity, uh, mining some altcoins or something to uh, offset what they're not getting in Bitcoin? Or how does this play out? Can you talk us well, through that? Well, we have the fee market. And you know, the optimistic, nobody knows is the truth, but the optimistic projection is... Uh, that the fee market will take up, will, will grow as the block reward decreases. So we, right now it's one and a half percent of minor revenue is coming from fees, transaction fees. But hopefully in the future, that percentage keeps ticking up and up. And when we hit 2140, it's going to be a hundred percent because there's no more block reward. Right, so the real open question is, what does the path to 
look like? And I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, what we've seen is that, you know, these L layer twos like lightning and uh, have taken a lot of the volume off chain, which is great because it pushes transaction costs down. But as good as that is from the perspective of adoption and use, and I think it's great, it's not great from the perspective of the future of mining um, and the development of a fee market. Because it's like, why should I transact on chain when I can do this L2 stuff? We need transactions on chain to be both plentiful and expensive in order to take over the role of the block subsidy. Right. And it's an open question whether that will develop or not. And I've heard really expert people who are smarter than me argue both sides of this, that it won't, the fee market will not materialize, that it will materialize. Uh, what do we do if it doesn't materialize? Ah, uh, I think in the short term, we're good. Uh, we've got another couple halvings. Uh, first of all, I think we have some cushion. I think that the, the, the security budget is in excess right now, and we can drop quite a bit and still be safe from a 51% from a, a attack. Uh, and I think the price of Bitcoin will go up in the next you know, 10 years. Uh, but once the block reward is down much lower, no, I don't see why Bitcoin's price has to go up accordingly. I really hate this argument where people say, oh, at the end of the century, uh, the, the, the miners are making whatever, I don't know what, what the mining reward is, but it's like uh, a tiny fraction of a Bitcoin. Therefore, and then they map that value onto a current mining reward of 6.25 per block, and they basically say Bitcoin will be worth um, enough so that that ratio remains so that the miners get paid the same in dollar terms. <laughs> I, I, I don't understand There's that no argument. No reason at to all. assume that that would be the case at all. No reason to assume that that would be the case at all. Uh, exactly. Because the value of Bitcoin is going to come from demand for Bitcoin, right. not the supply of Bitcoin. And uh, anyway, I, so I, I would just say we don't know. <laughs> and, um, you know, there are proposals like um, Paul Stortz's proposal uh, for whatever side chains where we do a, where miners get income from uh, mining other kinds of coins that are merged with Bitcoin and running on these side chains. Uh, so miners get comp his, he's got a plan for saving the miners. Um, which involves, you know, <laughs> BIP 300 and 301, I think, uh, saving the miners from 2100, you know. Uh, but other people have proposed, you know, uh, yeah, continued emissions, breaking the 21 million cap. Yeah, gross. exactly. Gross. You're shaking your head. Gross. I mean, it's pretty gross. It's pretty gross. Um, Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page, and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you.
So, so there's there's a lot of Bitcoin that have been lost along the way. Uh, we've oh yeah, we've heard. Oh, is this what you were talking about? Did I mishear your question? No, this is a separate question. Separate question. Okay. Yeah, uh, but we've heard uh, estimates over six million Bitcoin have been lost along the way. And uh, do you is there proposals for? Uh, somehow reviving those lost Bitcoin, because there, there's also an argument that says that if, yep. we, if we can continue to lose Bitcoin, then over time, we're going to lose all of them. Uh, somebody's, uh, they will all evaporate over time, like the next uh, thousand years or so. Uh, yeah, the, the, I, so I have heard this proposal that we take coins that are dormant for more than 10 years and we start awarding them to miners. And that solves the fee problem, and it keeps the supply of coins high. That's another proposed solution I've heard. Okay, uh, it's going to be tricky because, uh, you know, people are locking away their coins for a long period of time and expecting them to be there. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it's it's I mean, it's going to be really hard to get all the nodes or a lot of the nodes, the nodes with traffic, to update in that way. But I actually disagree on the point about lost coins. First of all, I've tried to use to estimate lost coins for the calculation we need. The, the proposal, which I didn't quite finish. Sorry, guys. I was long-winded on that. Um, the proposal Andrew, Andrew and I made is that you mine the same percentage of all mining as you own of all Bitcoin. And when you do both, then you have carbon-neutral Bitcoin, if your mining is carbon-neutral. Because... You're basically you have you're giving the same percentage of all disincentive as you are the percentage of all incentive to miners. The the disincentive to miners is all coming from each other. The incentive is coming from holders, and you're doing equal parts both. Okay, for that calculation, we need to estimate the number of lost coins. You can't just take your coins divided by all the ones that have been emitted because many of them are lost, and then everybody. If everybody followed our, our proposal, which of course they won't, but if everyone did, then all Bitcoin would be carbon neutral, actually. But if there's a whole bunch of lost coins, nobody's mining for their lost coins, right? Nobody's compensating for their lost coins. So we have to take your percentage as your percentage of non-lost coins. Right. So we, we looked at different estimates of how many lost coins, and I think six is quite high. That's the highest that I've encountered. I think it's more like two and a half or something like that. Something we used in our calculation. But will it increase? Yes. But here's the thing. <clears throat> As the value of Bitcoin increases, since I lost some coins myself <laughs> back in the day, uh, the reason I lost coins was because they weren't worth very much. Mm -hmm. So it's things like dust in transactions. Right. You know, so it's like I didn't when we had the run in 2017, I checked a bunch of old wallets and I found a significant amount of money there because it was just dust before, but then suddenly it's now it's worth something. But if Bitcoin continues to rise in value, that'll happen again, right? People are not sloppy with really large amounts of money. They're sloppy with amounts of money that are in, insignificant and rarely lose large amounts of money. So I think the rate of loss in terms of coins will keep dropping, whereas the rate of loss in fiat terms will be level or growing. Right? So if you lost 10 Bitcoins in 2011, you lost 50 bucks. You lost 10 Bitcoins, now it's 200,000 mm -hmm. bucks. 
So if you, so I basically, I think like, yeah, if I lost 50 bucks back then, I'd be the kind of guy who would lose 50 bucks now, but 50 bucks now is not a lot of Bitcoin. So keep doing that in the future. Do you keep losing Bitcoin? Yes, but it's asymptotically approaching losing zero Bitcoin. <laughs> well, I mean, the argument could be made that uh, the, the guy that wants to, that the people that used to put cash in the, in the mattress might, yeah. might be putting a cold wallet in the mattress and then they die in their sleep and nobody knows to check the mattress uh, as that gets thrown away. Yeah, there's going to be many great, great stories like that. Yeah. <laughs> But the truth is, we, we can. it doesn't matter. We, we could function on one Bitcoin. Suppose we're down to one Bitcoin. The whole economy is running on that. Why is, why is that bad? We've got a divisible, we've got a divisible currency. Because the guy dies that knows where it is? Well, I, I actually <laughs> wanted to weigh in on that. I, I think that the idea behind Bitcoin is that over time it will, it will incentivize lower time preference behavior. So that you're thinking further in, f in the future, primarily because the medium in which you're storing your value is not constantly depreciating and, be and being inflated away. So you can save money, and that not only incentivizes you to think for the long term, but also makes it more possible to do so. You'll have assets. You'll, you'll have a, a more stable price to, in, in which to denominate and compare different plans. And so it's, it seems like both in terms of the mining problem and in terms of the loss problem, if, if you have a civilization that's just fundamentally longer range, both of those may cease to be a problem. I, I could imagine a world in which you've got various endowments of very wealthy people, crypto billionaires, who are just paying at a loss to, to maintain the mining network because it's a, it's a public good, it's a thing they want to continue going. And I, I could imagine that you'd have, you know, almost like monastic orders that, that keep Bitcoin stored for very long periods of time and they, they sort of guard it and that's kind of what they do monastically. That's like their, their purpose. For the sole purpose of, of maintaining those coins and ensuring that we didn't, we're not down to one Bitcoin and the entire economy is not running on that. So, so hopefully civilization will respond to having a monetary substrate that incentivizes long-term behavior by actually thinking and behaving more long-term and solving problems like this that occur generationally. I, I like it. I, I love this monastic order. I want to join it. <laughs> <laughs> the, order, but, the order of the coin. Uh, the order of the coin, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I take your point, and especially, yeah, I, I, I should have said this earlier in the earlier answer. I, I agree that once the entire, suppose we hit hyper-Bitcoinization, let's indulge the fantasy, and everything is running on Bitcoin, then don't you think the major players who have everything at stake would mine uh, simply uh, to to defend their own holdings? Yeah, right. Uh, you know, the, the, basically the cost of them not mining would be greater than the cost of them mining. So they have they, they do some risk calculation, the risk of an attack of the network and them uh, losing some of their wealth. They multiply the probability of that happening times how bad it would be. And then they come up with a number and it's like, well, we could mine this much. And that number might be a lot more than the block reward at that time. So, uh, okay. yep. I, 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 actually, I think... Um, I mean, pe I people endow this, universities, right? People endow universities, and they set yep. up a trust that operates for a hundred or two hundred or three hundred. This is years. a Bitcoin endowment. It, it like it, it, yeah. it, it mines. It you set aside some Bitcoin and you mine with that bit with that Bitcoin in a Bitcoin endowment. Uh, of course, eventually it run, that runs out, but maybe you donate to it too when you die. Instead of putting it in your mattress, you donate to the the mining endowment. Uh, 
Yeah, actually, I keep running into these sorts of uh, perverse incentive structures. Perverse, I think they're great, but they sound, they're called perverse, right? Uh, throughout. So, for instance, talking to the, talking to the, uh, 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 to Justin at Duke, like, when they talk about Bitcoin mining and the economics of Bitcoin mining, for them, the alternative to mining Bitcoin is to putting in a giant piece of infrastructure that balances their load. So they might have a their lack an interconnect or something. They need to spend $2 million to put that interconnect in there. Or they could park a Bitcoin miner on the side with excess energy to soak it up. And that would balance their load. So from their perspective, it's like you're saving them 2 million bucks if you come in and mine on that, where they need you to mine at the amount they need you to mine. It's very different from the incentive of somebody who's just setting up to mine for no other reason. And the same goes for like heating operations. If you're heating a greenhouse, you're heating hot water, you're heating the city of Vancouver, you're drying timber, wherever you're using electric heat. When you put in a miner, what you want is to do better than the heater. You're not trying to compete on Bitcoin terms. You're trying to compete with what you were already doing that was literally wasting energy. And there are many things that we're going to run into like this. Like for me, for, our, for Andrew and I, he, here's the thing. We're selling a carbon neutral Bitcoin that's composed of Bitcoin, regular old Bitcoin, uh, this product, and then some mining that is mining with green energy. Uh, what are people looking for on the return on that? That mining will give some return and the Bitcoin will give some return. Well, it'll go up or down. What's the competition? The competition is carbon neutral Bitcoin achieved by buying carbon offsets using the same accounting we use to begin with, uh, how, much, how much carbon is your Bitcoin holding creating, and then buying carbon offsets to offset that carbon. So you're planting trees or whatever. Now, what's there's a carbon neutral ETF in Canada that does exactly that. What's the return on carbon credits? It's minus 100%. You don't get any return on a carbon credit. It's basically you get the forgiveness of carbon sins is what you get. You know, it's, it's absolute Eco-indulgences. Yeah, they're indulgences. Go and sin no more. And, uh, and our, so, so our competition, actually, for selling green hash rate is, is, some, is a product that loses 100%. So if green hash rate turns out to be not terribly profitable and ne negative half the time, you know, it's still doing way better. What if we lost 50% of the investment regularly? Still, it's the ch it's cheaper than a carbon credit, which is minus 100%. So there's, there's many of these incentives. I think that Bitcoin is such a powerful new tool. It, you can't think solely in Bitcoin terms because it's interfacing with the rest of the economy. It's it's replacing waste heat. It's it's a it's a form of load balancing. You know, it basically has positive externalities that we did not. You can't anticipate in a simple model. And 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 I and I agree with you too. That I think Bitcoin, although it's very speculative, right? Bitcoin changes you. Uh, it changes you on a personal level. Maybe it changes us on a social level. It it, it hasn't really been studied. Right. Uh, when yep. people talk about shifting time preference, when people talk about what 
what these price signals that are distorted have done to us and what it would like to be like to be on a sound uh, money standard, how that would change the way we think about the future. Would it make us more hopeful? Would it make us more ethical? Would it, would it, would it allow us to relate to each other in less of a, in less of a, a state of uh, zero sum uh, dog eat dog um, scarcity fighting for resources way. Um, you know, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. And the academic in me says, I cannot, I'm not allowed to say <laughs> Bitcoin fixes this. It makes society better. It makes us better. The academic part of me says like that hasn't been studied, <laughs> you know, and, and it hasn't, but then there's the Bitcoiner side of me, the personal side and the social side. And it's impossible to deny that it does change you in in some positive ways, you know, in that it does let you see the world different. It does change your time preference. Bitcoin for many of us is hope. And that's not just a cheesy saying, but it's something you experience and you can't deny it. Right. So, so Bitcoin or Troy says, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're going to totally, we're going to enter a new world, a new paradigm. And, uh, these problems will, will, uh, be solvable because we will be different kind of people up for solving them. And, and then there's the, the, the academic Troy who's like, yeah, <laughs> citation needed. Citation needed. Exactly. Exactly. Well, so for our final question here, I want to pick up on that thread a little bit. And this actually comes from Marcel Orenshaw on Twitter. He asks, is Bitcoin changing our moral responsibility for how we spend our money? We often say that we vote with our dollars, and indeed we do see Bitcoiners making different, more careful decisions with their money. Do you think this is the result of Bitcoin's inherent properties, and how do you see that playing out in the future? And answer that in 15 seconds, would you? Big, Bitcoin oh, yeah. and Troy, right. please. Bitcoin and Troy, That's a please. really, really great question. And yeah, the truth is that, that I don't know. And I think, here's one note of caution beyond just like the Saifedean kind of hypothesis that it changes our, 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 our time preference, shifts our time preference, and beyond even the Jeff Booth hypothesis that we will be more rational in allocating capital once we have prices that are real right. rather than fake prices that are constantly manipulated. And both of those, I think there's some, some truth to them. But here's a thought is that in a way, the sample of Bitcoiners my small sample and, and mostly myself reflecting on how I spend and how it changes. Um, I, I think it really has shifted shifted my consumption in, in a really wild and kind of spiritual way, actually. Uh, stacking feels good. It especially feels good in a bear market. Yeah, it does. Uh, but what's weird is you start to stack because you actually want more for your future self. And also because I had a lot of Bitcoin at one point and don't have it anymore. And I have those regrets. Uh, but you stack for your future self because you want wealth, basically. It's number go up. Bitcoin is a greed to freedom transformation machine. It's a Trojan horse. But it works on greed. But here's the thing. Greed is the input. And then you start saving and not spending. You start stacking sats. And you find yourself, like uh, <laughs> Klaus Schwab says, you own nothing. <laughs> you own some Bitcoin, but you own nothing. And you're happy. You're not spending. You're hopeful. You're thinking about the future and you find happiness. And it's something like, you know, you're part of a community. You, you're part of a vision of the future and all of that's exciting. 
but you actually realize that you don't need a lot of stuff that you thought you needed. So it starts with greed, but it ends with a kind of enlightenment about the shallowness of consumption and the true source of happiness. And it's been very gratifying for me in 2011 to see the kind of Lambo culture shift into, I don't like everything about Bitcoin Twitter culture, certainly, but shift <laughs> into this idea of what the good life is that involves family, that involves friendship, that involves deep investment into land. You know, like the memes now, it's like you want to own like a cattle ranch in a citadel <laughs> or whatever. You know what I mean? You build a network of people who are your friends. This is way better than the Lambo memes. Yep. It, it has shifted, right? And then my only kind of caution, so I love it. I like There's a spiritual kind of enlightenment path here that it, it's wonderful. And my, my kind of cautionary note about it is I think once Bitcoin becomes ubiquitous, if it, if it does become ubiquitous and we get hyper-Bitcoinized, then it's just backdrop. And like every subculture, it, every subculture that is successful gets absorbed into the culture and kind of diluted into nothing, right? Like there was an internet culture, but now the internet is just how, or, how normies live their lives. There isn't like, an, you know what I mean? Yeah. There aren't internet people anymore. They're just people, <laughs> everybody. So, you know, what I see is like once Bitcoin sort of some of this effects of Bitcoin might be because the price has gone up tremendously. Yes, that fills you with hope when your net worth goes up by a thousand fold. You know what I mean? Sure. But maybe it's different when it's going up at the rate of economic growth, which is basically nothing. And so it's hard to project the way Bitcoin has changed us and our community out into a hyper Bitcoinized future where it no longer distinguishes a subclass, a subculture of people who are enthusiastic, somewhat misunderstood, persecuted, driving an ideological cause that requires a lot of brain power actually to understand and get in the rabbit hole experience. That's our initiation, right? There's a whole much that forges us, our identity and our experience that will not exist in a hyper-Bitcoinized future where it's ubiquitous and the tools are already made and even like the number's not going up, the rabbit hole is not as deep, nobody knows what's under the hood. And we're gonna like hook up with each other at like reunions, like, <laughs> hey, remember that? Remember that time when being a Bitcoiner was actually a thing? When Bitcoin is gonna be so ubiquitous, it's like plugging your socket into the wall. We're like the electricity bros, you know, of the future. You know? <laughs> just, like, there's, there's no such thing, you know? So, uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah. Okay, there's my answer. <laughs> well, I think that is a, a hopeful and hilarious note to end on. Thanks so much, uh, Troy. It's it's been a wonderful conversation. Th this is terrific. Thanks, yeah. Troy. Been really great talking to you guys. Thanks for waiting. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.